Shelby, what's wrong with the car? Uh-oh, I think it's broke. Look, that thing there is all swoped up. We, we got a pair of pliers and a screwdriver. We can find out. I think we should just start poking stuff. Oh, all right. All right. don't do that, folks. Tune into the Grease Gurus. Don't go to the emergency room. Go to the Grease Gurus and learn why your car might have stopped on the side of the road and what not to touch. On Saturday mornings <laughs> from 10 a.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network. Ouch, that hurt. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. so excited about a little thing like that. A little thing? Sure. We do it every day to test our cars. But isn't the driver hurt? No, probably not much. Anyway, it's his job. He's a former racing driver. Wait a minute. All right, Terry, just wait a second. Don't worry, everything you are. Hey, fellas, come on. Come on, are you fellas? Come on! Wait a minute, Terry, there's something wrong here. Hey, fellas. What do you think this is, a fashion show? Come on, will you, you stupid guys? Come on now. You seem pretty cold-blooded about it. Just relax now, Isn't it better for a professional driver to pump his noggin and have your Aunt Rinda get herself killed because of faulty brakes or weak instruction? I guess so. But I don't have an Aunt Rinda. And if I did have, her name would be Sophia. And uh, what could your name possibly be beside, um, Philarthia? Well, it could be Jane Mitchell. In fact, it is. I just started in the publicity department. And I'm Frank Lawson. I'm in the engineering department. Have a look. Get that can open. What do you think that guy is in there? Caviar? And you got no consideration? Come on, take it easy. Open that door now. Now get out of here. Hiya, Terry. Hey, did you see that thing flop over? Yeah. There's something wrong with it. Hey, here's your coat. Who's that? Oh, I don't know. Hey, that crate turned over too easy. Something wrong that spring balance there. There can't be anything wrong with it. Figured it out to a T. Yeah, well, you better go on to XYZ. That's the trouble with you pencil pushers. You draw a whole lot of pretty pictures and can't possibly work and won't pay any attention to the guy who really knows what he's talking about, you know? Yeah, and you birds don't think a fellow can have an idea unless he's got cylinder oil in his hair. Oh, uh, Miss Mitchell, uh, this is Terry Martin, our chief tester. Miss Mitchell's in the publicity department. Ah, hello, Miss Mitchell. Hello. Uh, who's that gentleman? Who, me? Uh, my, my name is Clarence Maximilian Haggerty. 
Uh, j just call me Gadget. You know, I'm the brains of the whole organization. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we've got that settled. I thought it was a three-cornered race. Well, much as I hate to leave such distinguished company, I have to be on my way. Uh-huh. Well, where are we going? In different directions. You see, I have to cover as much of the plant as I can. Mr. Dean asked me to see all I could before reporting back to him. Then, by all means, come with me. We'll, uh, we'll start with the engineering department. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, what's she going to learn looking at a whole lot of hand scratching? Now, come on with a guy that really knows what this business is all about. Yeah. <laughs> but I have my own car. That's fine. We'll take that. Will you take yeah, that? Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, I catch you on. I know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Goodbye. <laughs> hey, don't look now, but you went down swinging. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the Wayback Machine. We enter the way back and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space. Hey, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Knock them alive over there, brother Robert. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cards, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run to your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios. Don't forget, hey, we're live on YouTube these days. Uh, follow us on Facebook, and I think we do a little Twitter, and uh, we're still working on the Instagram thing. Uh, check out our website, GulfStreetMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past 420-some-odd shows, yes, they're all archived on Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the Park blah, 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 the archive page, and uh, so hey, we got a great show for you tonight. We got a very very special guest coming in and calling in a little bit later. So uh, keep your fingers crossed that uh, we don't have any uh, let's say technical malfunctions due to Mother Nature. Because a few minutes ago we actually like lost power for a second or two or three or four or a minute. Or three or four or five, something like that. So we were a little concerned, but uh, hey, we're live on the air right now, so we should get through this. And uh, if you're up there in the panhandle, well, run for the hills because you're closer to them than we are, right, Vaughn? How you doing tonight, buddy? <laughs> hey, how you doing tonight, Robert? Yeah, they got uh, something coming for them. They got something coming for them, right? Well, you're heading up that way too this weekend, aren't you? Yeah, I'm actually going to uh, probably exceed the panty. I'll probably go to uh, South Carolina, but uh, I don't know. They they got some unexpected stuff up there. Too, so we'll see. <laughs> They're just recovering. Okay, Mother Nature's got a real sense of humor this year. So anyway, we're getting it from both sides. Now, all right, you're probably wondering what I did this weekend. Well, there's two swap meets this weekend. I might have mentioned them last week on the show. And me being a swap meet junkie, uh, it's kind of, it's just like, I don't know. It's a sickness. It's a disease. It's just one of the things you have to do, you know, especially if you got parts or you're in the cars, you know, you need to have onesies, twosies, triplicates, quadruplets, uh, you know, just lots of stuff, you know. Someday, eventually, you kind of come to the realization that maybe you don't need all this stuff, but uh, it's hard. The hardest thing for a guy, the hardest thing for a guy that's a junkie or a junkie or a swamp meat junkie is to let go and go, well, you know, because we're used to saying, hey, I could do something with this. I got friends of mine. I can't tell you how many friends, myself included. You know, all we have is we have these little warehouses, and uh, you have parts from the floor to the ceiling. And you have a little path that kind of zigzag through, like it's like a maze. I was over at my friend Brian's the other day. Brian, if you're listening. And uh, Brian used to work for me. He's been around, gosh, since he was 17. He collects cougars. And he's got cougars everywhere, cougar parts everywhere. And, of course, I was in the cougars too because I like Mercury's. 
And uh, he's just got stuff everywhere. Mark, our, uh, Brian's a super mechanic, too. Really, really smart kid. So, uh, but anyway, and he's just one guy, you know. I was in my friend George's not too long ago. Same thing. I mean, it's just like you have to have, you almost need a map to get through their building because uh, there's these little alleys and these little jog-offs here and there. And it's like you could get lost in there. <laughs> That's how bad it is if they're, you know, three, 4,000 square feet. So anyway, so I went up to our good friends up there at Sumter County uh, uh, Fairgrounds, and that's uh, Craig and Joanne. Because what I did is I left here at uh, 4, a little after 4. I got there, stopped by McDonald's on 50 and and uh, the 75, U.S. 75, not, or uh, state, uh, I-75. And I set up. I have not set up a swap meet in 10 years. 10 years, ladies and gentlemen. But I'll tell you what, it was really, really fun. It was kind of like a really cool social. So I loaded the van up with uh, tons and tons of stuff. I had some nice stuff, and I had some so-so stuff. And my experience in the past has dictated that uh, a lot of times at a swap meet, you can't uh, sell your really, really good stuff. So you sell the stuff that you like, and eh, you want to broom it, you know, and just let it go cheap. So I sold some boogered-up valve covers. I sold a used tire, an emblem or two, uh, some hubcaps, stuff that I thought was worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars and i walked away and i netted a big whopping 40 bucks so that was the highlight of my my sunday and that's not counting the two hours to drive up the two hours to drive back the six hours i sat there sweating it out in the heat you know chugging down water we did see uh, a lot of really cool stuff there but you know what? I met a lot of really cool people. I hung a little cardboard sign on the side of my car that said, Wanted, Wanted. Of course, you couldn't see that very well, but it said Wanted. Wanted, Shelby Boss Parts, uh, 356 Porsche Parts, 911 Parts, Austin Healey 3000 Parts, Jaguar XKE Parts, and Vintage Electric Guitars. And I was amazed at how many people came up and said they either knew of something or... Uh, had something in their garage they were looking to get rid of. So that's kind of the virtue or the kind of like the plus side of going to a swap meet is it's not so much that you're going to be there selling stuff, but you're going to network. And I saw a lot of old friends. I saw some friends of mine I hadn't seen in a few years. And uh, we hardly recognize each other, you know, because we're all aged a little bit. Got a few more wrinkles, a few more gray hair, uh, you know, gruffy-looking beards. Uh, some people have some teeth. Some people don't. Some people had tattoos. Some people didn't. Some people got fat. Some people got skinny. And it's like, wow. Anyway, so, uh, Mr. Vaughn, I think what we should do is fire up that stereo again. I met a pretty girl who really turned me on, but we didn't make it very far. It's hard to make love to a lady when she's munching on a candy bar. I get off on it I get off on it Give me just a little slack Can't you see I'm into snacks yeah. I get off on it There was a pretty thing in Los Angeles But she was a man in women's clothes I told him he would get some kind of dangerous Cause how's a fool like me gonna know And I couldn't help but say Why you wanna dress 
that way And he goes I get awful I get awful it. Yeah. it ain't no sweat off your nose I just dig him ladies' clothes <laughs> Ooh, I get awful Guess what? I guess we got our special guest on the radio now. So, uh, without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Gaming Cars, Jay Leno. Jay, how you doing, buddy? Good. Tell a few jokes, try to make a living. That's the gig. <laughs> Tell a few jokes, try to make a living. Okay. You got a joke for us? Uh, nothing I can do on the radio. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. So, uh, can you talk about what you did today a little bit? Well, today I'm working with my buddy Tim Allen on. Uh, Last Man Standing, I'm kind of a regular on the show now, so we have fun. We're both car guys, so we always bring uh, something interesting. Uh, the other day, I drove my uh, Duesenberg chassis to the show, and uh, Tim brought his Dodge Demon. So every day, we try to see what the other guys bring in. So it's almost like the same thing you do on your TV show. Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's it. I mean, Tim and I always have fun. Okay, you're always trying to. It's kind of like you, uh, like uh, Tim's always trying to one up you, you know. But that's pretty hard to do because you're the master. <laughs> well, no, I don't know about that, but we have fun. It's all good fun. You know, um, you've been on my show quite a few times now, and I'm very thankful for that. It's always good to have you back, and uh, I, I, I just have a ton of respect for you, and I think you're probably one of the most knowledgeable guys in the industry. So it's very difficult to try to think of something. What can we talk about tonight? Well, I was surfing around on the internet, and I'm going to throw this one out at you. And yeah. a, little, a little birdie threw this one at me, too. He says, why don't you talk to Jay about aircraft-powered vehicles? And let's go back to the turn of the century when they were first experimenting with it a little bit and how it's kind of evolved to it's kind of like a commonplace today. You want to do that? Well, nobody was experimenting with it. It was just the classic hot rodder thing, you know, especially for the first 20 years of aviation. Aviation motors were just larger, better more dependable versions of automobile engines. I mean, where cars might have five liters or six liters, airplanes had 12, 18, 22 liters. And they had redundant ignition systems. I mean, they had two magnetos, two distributors. Because if a car stalls, we just pull off the side of the road. A plane stalls, and it costs you fall out of the sky. <laughs> so ignition systems, carburation, all of that was much better in an airplane. And it kind of went away. By the time World War II hit, the V-8 piston-powered aircraft or the V-12 piston-powered aircraft was kind of seen its demise. Radial engines were coming in. Rotary engines were coming in. Certainly jets and that kind of thing. So the golden age was probably up to about 1925, 1926. Uh, you know, the Hispano V-8 was the first aero-engine V-8 engine. It was aluminum with iron liners and it was built in America under uh, Wright Martin. It was built in England under Wolseley, and it was built in Paris and uh, 
Spain under Hispanos ways. Hispanos, Mark Burkett was a designer. He was Swiss and he worked in Spain, so it was called Hispanos Huerta. And uh, you see a lot of those around. A lot of those guys would take off four cylinders and run it as a big four-cylinder sprint motor in, you know, in midgets and offy cars. And it was 18 and a half liter, so it would be a nine liter four if you blocked off four of the cylinders. So it was a real interesting time. But there aren't many aircraft engine cars around anymore. I mean, there's nothing from a modern aircraft you can really put in a car anymore. Well, weren't they kind of playing around with jet engines a little bit? I've got a couple of jet engine cars. I've got a Chrysler turbine car, which was, of course, a turbine bespoke to Chrysler. I mean, it was it was built to be. The trouble with turbines is the, the metals are so exotic because of the heat ranges that you can't, you know, for example, I've got a, 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 a LT-101 uh, Honeywell. Honeywell, I guess an LT-101 uh, jet engine in, the, in a car. And I got it surplus. But if you bought it new, it would be like a million bucks. Ooh. And the reason, the reason Chrysler was able to do it is they had a metallurgist named Dr. Roy. He was a Frenchman. And he came up with a metal that was not good enough for aero, for aero use, but good enough for automobile use. Meaning it could take the heat, but not as a constant, uh, flat-out, uh, you know, full RPM all the time of, of, of an airplane engine. But in a car, it, 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 it was... Uh, so it wasn't quite as though Chrysler was able to develop that Chrysler turbine engine, but it was still about twice as much as a piston engine. That's why it didn't really succeed. You know, it's funny. They stopped building a Chrysler Hemi because it cost them something like $28 more to make than the Chrysler 440. So when you see how fine the profit margin is, an engine that costs two or three times is not going to make it, you know. Curious, you know, you talk about the turbine car. I believe that was used in a movie with uh, James Darren and uh, oh, no. James Darren, Pamela Tiffin, and uh, oh, what's the other guy's name? I can't remember. Doug, Doug, uh, Doug McClure. Doug McClure. It was Doug called. Wasn't McClure, it called yeah. the Lively Set or something like that? Was that it? The Lively Set, and you know who wrote the theme song? No, who? Randy Newman. Did he really? Little people, yeah, the little people guy. The lively set. I mean, it was really kind of corny. But, you know, it wasn't a bad movie. It had, like, Mickey Thompson. It had a lot of guys in it. It was about a kid played by James Darren who quit school to build his own turbine car. And his dad runs a, you know, a gas station or something like that. He works there and he builds this turbine car. And, he, you know, he's smarter than everybody else. He doesn't want to go to college, you know, and they're trying to get him to go to college. You know, the usual stuff. Uh And he enters the big race what would be now the Silver State Classic, where you race across Nevada. And, you know, they speed up the film and all this kind of stuff, but they used a real Chrysler Terminal car in the movie. In fact, James Darren called me, uh, oh, God, about two months ago, and he said, hey, can I come over and see the Terminal car? Because he remembers it from doing the film in 1964. Whatever happened to that actual movie car? Now, I, don't Amer- know, I don't know. What it, you know, all the, all the Chrysler Terminal cars were painted color called turban bronze they built 55 of them and when chrysler ended the turban program and the reason they ended it was they knew emissions were coming up emission legislation and there was no way a turban can 
the uh, could pass any sort of emission. Just by the very nature, they're dirty motors. I mean, they're the nice thing about them is there's few moving parts. There's no warm up required. They burn any fuel that burns with oxygen. Uh, but you know, one spark plug, and you know, it's a fantastic car to drive. But it just when it goes by, you smell it. You know, <laughs> it, it smell. You know, it smells like an airplane. You know, and that's kind of the problem. There's no, there was just no way to clean up a turbine. And when Chrysler ended the program, they offered to donate Chrysler turbine cars to museums. But museums didn't want them because it was a new car. You know, it was 1963. And who puts a 1963 car in a museum? So Chrysler didn't want people pulling the turbine out and putting a Hemi in it and dragging it on the street and ruining the reputation of so they crushed most of them. Oh. They crushed they crushed all but nine. And I think four or five were distributed to museums with the turbine engines made inoperable, meaning they just had the shell. They took out the rotors and the heat exchangers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they, they were just, they were static. They didn't work. Uh, there was only three or four that actually ran. And I, I've got one of those. It's a fabulous car to drive. I no. mean, it's smooth, it's quiet. It's not really, it's not meant to be a really fast car. It's about as fast as a 318 V8, you know. Uh, it, it goes along fine. The real advantage of it is you get instant heat. There's no cooling system. There's no fluid, really, other than the torque flight transmission. Uh, and uh, it runs on any fuel that burns with oxygen. You know, when they took the German car to Mexico, they ran it on tequila. When they took it to France, they they filled the tank with Chanel Number no. Five. But back, <laughs> they did, but back really? in the day, gasoline was twenty six cents a gallon. So an alternative fuel that was twenty one or nineteen cents a gallon really wasn't that big a deal. And the only thing the turbine car would not run on was leaded fuel. And of course, in the sixties, all you had was leaded fuel. All fuel had lead in it. So consequently, you always had to put diesel in it or peanut oil or kerosene or something else. And it was messy and dirty. And, you know, just it was an interesting program. It's something that never could have happened today. What Chrysler did is they ran a contest and they asked uh, people to write a letter why I would want to drive a turbine car or a jet car. And they got 100,000 responses and they picked 209 people and... Each one of those people got the car for three months. Uh, the cars were rotated among all the stories. And each one had it for three months, and they kept a diary of what they thought. And to this day, I still get guys in my age group that were 9 or 10 or 13 when their dad was part of the program, and they come by the garage to look at it, or they want to go for a ride or something like that. So it's really pretty cool. Interesting. So, what's the throttle response like on that car? I mean, when you're driving it, so it's got a. You said it's got a torque flight. So it's, I'm assuming it's a 727 torque flight, and it's still so it's a three speed automatic. But how is it? I mean, with th- in terms of throttle response, acceleration. I mean, what's it like? Is it smooth? Is it uh, weird? The, tor- the torque converter is removed and uses the turbine as the torque converter. So. Okay. Uh, I mean, acceleration is it's best as you could say brisk. Okay. I mean. I mean, if you torque load it, if you put your foot on the brake and, and you know, put the gas about halfway down and then lift your foot and nail it, you can break the tire loose if you want, but that's not the kind of car it is. 
it's meant to it was meant to be a personal luxury car along the lines of the Thunderbird. Okay. And and that for that reason it works perfectly. I mean, it is dead smooth. You know, it's funny because uh, you know a piston engine is reciprocating, it goes up and down. Even though you don't think, even on a smooth one, you don't think there's vibration. But when you get a turbine where everything's spinning in the same direction, boy, it's amazing how much smoother it is. You know, it's like a it's like a wankle. You just go down the road, and it's uh, it, 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 it it still feels like the future. You start it up, and it sounds like a jet, and it whirs and makes all these noises. You know. And then you silently pull away. It's pretty cool. Uh, I just actually got a text from a cusser from one of the listeners, and they wanted to know if your car was one of them that was featured in one of the magazines, Car and Driver, 25 years ago. Was that your car? Well, I've had mine for a few years. I've had mine about 15 years, 18 years. I don't know if there was one. It probably was not the one in Car and Driver. I mean, they're all painted the same color. Mm-hmm. They're all the same color interior. So uh, it's, it's hard to... Uh, decide which was which, you know. Okay. Might have been. My car was owned by Chrysler, so they used it as part of their press release. Whenever people wanted to drive one, they would take that, so that's where I got mine. Interesting. The, uh, back to the aero cars. Now, you mentioned the Hispano Sueza. You, you have one of those, I presume? I have a 1915 Hispano Sueza chassis with a 1915 Hispano Sueza aircraft engine in it. We've got a 1919 Delage bus transmission. I mean, it's a hot rod, and it's 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 really quite fast. Uh, my favorite aero engine car right now is we took a 27 liter Merlin uh, out of one of the uh, Spitfires, totally rebuilt it, and put it in a 34 rolls P2 chassis. We used a big Dodge six speed truck transmission. I mean, this thing's got so much torque you can pull away in six. You know. Um, 27 liters, it's about uh, 1,100 horsepower or something without the supercharger, so it goes pretty good. Interesting. Now, uh, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, one of your uh, staff members, Jim, today a little bit, and uh, he mentioned that that car has Weber's on it. Right. We put, um, obviously, the engine originally came with a two-stage supercharger. Uh It's an airplane, so we mounted it backwards meaning we have the propeller end driving the transmission, so the engine is turned around. We used a 3D printer to make our own intake manifolds so we could run uh, six big Webers on it. My. <laughs> like bigger than 48s? No, 48s there. 48s, okay. So that's kind of like what you would stick on a Porsche or a Jag or something like that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And the transmission is, what is the transmission on that one again? A uh, big Dodge truck transmission out of one of the uh, the big, um, you know, trailer trucks. Okay, so it would be like a period correct truck out of the day, or is it something a little bit newer? No, something no, something new. Okay. There's nothing. That, there was nothing in the day that could take this kind of power. I mean, you're looking at crazy torque. What, 1,000 foot power? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is a massive engine. It's 27 liters. You know, you figure a Dodge Viper is just about eight liters. You know, so give you some idea of the size of it. Wow. Let me ask you this: I th- remember seeing on one of the TV shows you had something, and I think it was called an EcoJet or something like that. It looked like a Cadillac. Yeah, that's the car we built for SEMA. You okay. Know, it was funny. I thought, well, I'll never be able to get a Chrysler Turbine car. You can't get those. 
So we'll just build our own. And we built the body out of carbon fiber, and we built the whole thing. And then, of course, then I was able to buy the Chrysler Service Car. Uh, yeah, that, that's the one that uses the Honeywell LT101 jet engine. It goes through Corvette uh, four-speed automatic transmission. Now, take us through the process. So you sat there one afternoon. You said, I'm going to come up with something really, really cool because the design in the car is very contemporary. It's got a nice look, but yet it, it's, it has actually a, a very timeless look, in my opinion. So how did the whole concept come about? Well, we went down to our friend at Channel Motors, the design studio, and we showed them what we had. And they've got that big computer down there. And, you know, you start sketching stuff out of napkins. And they said, how do you like this? How do you like this? Like all the optometrists, you like this way, you like this way. You like this one, you like this, you like this. And that's kind of how we put it together. I mean, GM really did the styling on it. We told we wanted to be two-seater. We wanted to run on alternative fuel. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, even the interior doesn't use any leather or animal skins. We wanted to be, you know, sort of recycled materials and that kind of stuff. And carbon fiber. And, uh... Yeah, it goes pretty good. We featured it on Jay Leno's Garage. I think if you can go to YouTube, Jay Leno's Eco Jet, you can see us. I took Neil deGrasse Tyson in it. We were going to be taking it to 200, and then the window, five window blew out at 165, and I thought, okay, let me think put this back in. Because I was a little leery of the tires. We didn't put new tires on it. The tires were a little old, and I didn't want to take those tires to 200 miles an hour. <laughs> and then when the window blew out, I went, okay, that's, that's where you can yeah, I saw that. That was uh, yeah. Who was riding the car with you? That was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay, all right. You know the you know the astrophysicist, great guy. Yeah. <laughs> so what was his theory on that? What was what did he think? Well, what happened was the, the windows were. Uh, we had the windows um, sort of epoxied in; they don't roll down. And one window was starting to pull away, and the. Li- you know, the air got under the lip, and that's what pulled it off. Okay. Land speed record cars. Do you own anything like that? I mean, anything that's uh, very... No, no. No? I don't have anything like that, no. I mean, I like those kind of things, but I don't see the practicality of it. Okay. But, I mean, it, it, it's fun. I mean, I've got... My favorite thing is, you know, the Stanley Brothers, in 1906, for the Stanley Steamer... They ran 127.6 miles an hour, and they had the land speed record. What the Stanley Brothers did was they didn't have wind tunnels back then. They used sort of fluid dynamics. What they did was they went to every canoe company in Massachusetts, and they pulled each canoe through the water using a pole with a needle on it to register how many pounds it took to pull each canoe through the water. And the canoes that went through the water the easiest is the least amount of pull. They took two of those canoes, put one on top of the other, put the engine inside it, and went 127 miles an hour. That was 1906. Then three or four years ago, Great Britain, in an attempt to break the Stanley Brothers' 127-mile-an-hour record for steam, built a steam car that cost like $2 million, you know, turbines, computer-driven, every, you know, trick thing in it, and they only went 139. I mean, they beat the record, but they also went less than 20 miles an hour faster than the Stanley Brothers did almost 100 years ago. So I, I always thought that was kind of the music. At, at a cost of $2 million. 
Uh, some crazy thing like that, yeah. <laughs> well, something I wanted to share with you, um, and I was, and because uh, early in the show, I play, I always play like a little clip, and uh, one of them was from that uh, 1936 movie with Jimmy Stewart called Speed. Well, when I was out west one time, and I have to kind of the, the, the gentleman has his car, kind of wants to keep it quiet, but uh, the the actual car, the it was called the Falcon in the movie, and it was basically, yeah. it was a streamlined car built for. Well, Frank Lockhart was that the Frank Lockhart car? I'm not sure if it, it was called a something Thunderbolt at one point, Thunderbolt Comet, and uh, yeah. it, okay, well he apparently that car was uses a promotional vehicle, some little roundy-round track out there in the Mojave Desert, and then eventually it was put under a sign you used to attract people of an old restaurant that was uh, out there in, uh, in in the desert. Well, this gentleman, f- for some reason, saw the movie, thought this would be kind of cool, and then he just went on this quest to find that car. He actually found it, and, while, and this gentleman restores Mercedes-Benz's, and we're talking... 50s Mercedes, 300 SCs, you know, the coupes, the SLs, and stuff like that. So he's a, he's, a, he's a true craftsman. And he has this car. And when I was in there, after we kind of built a relationship and, and this little trust, he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you in here, and I'll show you something that you, you will, will totally astonish you. And he said, but you got to be sworn to secrecy. And I said, okay, you've got it. So I well, that worked out. Well. That worked out well, didn't it? That secrecy thing worked out well. Well, well, wait a minute. No, I did. I did disclose where it's at. I just said it's it's it exists. You know. But wait a minute. On the internet, on the internet, Jay, it it there it already they acknowledged that they found the car. So I can at least yeah. say that. And okay. Uh, <laughs> So, but at any rate, uh, but I, I didn't know whether you were familiar with that story a little bit, but I just, th- stories like that are totally fascinating to me, you know? It's you know, like, it's funny to me. I had, I had an old guy call me up and he said, I got a car I want to sell. I said, what is it? He said, it's a, a Lincoln, a Lincoln Zephyr. I like Lincoln Zephyr. Oh, okay. And he says, it's got some celebrity provenance, you know? And I said to him, well, I'm, I'm not a big, you know, I just like to buy the car. I mean... It's nice if Frank Sinatra owned it or somebody owned it, but I'm more interested, you know. He go, well, this car was owned by a celebrity. So I, said, so I said to him, okay, who's the celebrity? And he says, Hoot Gibson. And I go, Hoot Gibson. <laughs> I, said, I said, when I was a little kid, my father would say Hoot Gibson. And Hoot Gibson was old when my dad was a kid. Hoot Gibson was a guy in the old western. He always got like the beard, and he would play like the cook on the wagon train, you know, while the engines are shooting arrows, he'd be going, by golly, you're ruining my chili, you know. <laughs> you know and, and I said to him, you know something, just selling this car about 50 years too late. I mean, I said, if this was 1959, you might get something for Hoot Gibson's car, but I said, I, don't, I, said, I barely know who Hoot Gibson is, and I'm 68. So I, I said, well, good, good luck selling this celebrity provenance. It just made me laugh. There was, uh, if if I had to guess, in Southern California or, or pretty much out west. I mean, I know you're a big fan of uh, Bring a Trailer, right? The website. Well, I like all those corn find, Bring a Trailer. Yeah, any of the ones that aren't just you know one Ford Focus after another. So it would almost be fair to say that if you were looking for a car and you were in, let's just say, California, Oregon, Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, that part of the world, for some reason, almost any car that you could possibly imagine would probably still be around there someplace in a barn? Well, probably because of, you know, because of the weather conditions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, this this barn thing I find interesting. You know, I, I did a little research and I found out the average farmer makes about forty two thousand five hundred dollars a year. How these guys can have birdcage Maseratis and Ferrari GTOs in their barns, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, it, I I can't possibly understand how that happens. All these cars show up in barns. Well, how does an Aston Martin TV five wind up in a barn? I mean, it just it just makes me laugh. It, it's like the flavor of the month. That's the thing. Now you take something, you throw some dirt on it, you go, "Oh, oh it's a barn find," you know. Well, now, I prefer a car that's been well maintained or and driven, you know. Okay, well, to 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 your point, though, like for example, if you go to Northern California and you go up around the wine country area, a lot of the people that own those vineyards, many of them Italian, had Italian liked Italian cars. Let's just say Maseratis, Ferraris, and stuff like that. So they may have owned those cars, but when those cars parked, or if they had an issue with the cars, they parked them and then just sat there and just shoved them in the back of the barn. Well, two generations later, the kids have no interest in the cars, so suddenly. They become barn finds. Is there some validity to that, you think? Oh, I think there is. I mean, I always tell people, if you're looking for cars, look in rich neighborhoods. Beverly Hills, Palm Springs. Those are the places people will, first of all, they usually have garages. And if they're not running a car, it's parked inside. It's protected from the, from the weather conditions. And they're more likely to maintain it. You know, I had an old lady call me up about eight months ago. You go to Jay Leno's garage and see this thing. And she said, oh, Jay, tell me her name. She wouldn't tell me how old she was, but she was Marilyn Monroe's roommate before Marilyn was famous. So figure that out. (laughs) And she says, oh, I got this car for sale, and uh, I think you'd like it. I said, what is it? A 66 Lincoln four-door. And I said, well, it's kind of a big car. It's not my kind of car. Well, you got to come see it. I go over to our house, and I wouldn't say it's brand new, but it looked like a three-year-old car. A couple little supermarket things in the door, you know, stuff like that. Original paint, original upholstery. You know that that walk like an Egyptian top that me, 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 it pulls every which way. (laughs) That all worked perfectly. Uh, She had every paper. She drove her from Beverly Hills to the country club, to the hairdressers, to the supermarkets, to home. She put a thousand miles a year on it for the last almost 50 years. And I had to buy it. It's, it's like a brand new 66 Lincoln Continental. It's just a fabulous driving car. And that's what I mean when you go into wealthy neighborhoods, Palm Springs or wherever, you're more likely to find something that even has been neglected. It hasn't been left outside with the, with the top down and the windows open. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Now that brings me to the 1929 Kleiber. So, oh yeah, the Kleiber. Yeah, tell yeah. us about that. How did you know about that one? The Kleiber. Kleiber is a very rare oddball. It was the only car built in the city of San Francisco. And what what people used to do back. You know, the car industry back in the 20s and 30s like the computer industry today. Everybody invented something, and then they built a car around it. You know, Stutz invented, at least in America, the transaxle, and he sold it to everyone. And then he realized, why don't I just build a whole car? So you bought engines from Continental or Beaver or any of these people that made the motors, and then you bought somebody else's front ends and rear ends, and then somebody built your body. I mean, in 1915, 1918, there were 350 automobile manufacturers in America. 
And every year we lose another 10 to 20 percent. I mean, in the last 10 years, we've lost what, more than 10. Oldsmobile, you know, Pontiac, uh, you know. Uh, Mercury. All, yeah, all of these things, yeah. So Cliber was a car built in San Francisco, and the idea was if a car was built locally and you bought one, you could get it serviced because you were near the place of manufacture. So he sold probably five or 600 cars in the Northern California area. So finally, you know, General Motors and Ford, and kind of just couldn't compete anymore, you know. But uh, it's, it's pretty rare. It's a pretty rare car. And I got it from the grandson of Flyber. His grandfather built the car and started the company. And it looks pretty much like any other Buick or Oldsmobile of the period. You know, it's a four-door sedan, very utilitarian. Because it's San Francisco, it has four-wheel brakes, not just two-wheel brakes. Uh, and it's just it, it's just an interesting piece of Americana. What? Uh, how is it powered? Is it a six-cylinder, eight-cylinder, four-cylinder? What kind of motor is in it? It's an eight-cylinder. It's I think it's a Continental motor. You know, Continental built industrial engines for anybody that would buy them. Okay. Uh, in the same way that you know, Shelby bought two eighty-nine Fords to put in his Cobra. You know, it's okay. the same thing. You, you know, uh, Cadillac sold engines to Allard and everybody else. Uh, and, and and you just built a car around it, and then you put your name on it. Did um, did would was the motor source so the Continental engine? Let me, if I'm correct, correct on that, wasn't uh, Howard Hughes? Wasn't he involved in Continental engines? He might have been, yeah. Because wasn't do with Lincoln Continental? It was no, Continental, no, no, Continental. Right, right, right. Because right. there was an. I, I thought they were like industrial slash aviation, but wasn't that what they used in a Tucker? No, Tucker used a Franklin aircraft. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Tucker used a Franklin. Yeah. Okay. Now, while you brought up, okay, the the Tucker, um, you know, which is an interesting car, and of course the 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 values that those cars have attained are staggering right now, which is is right. is good though in a way. And I'm not sure. Do you have a Tucker in your collection? I don't have a Tucker. I have a Tatra. A Tatra, which is, which is Okay. It's ten years, ten years older than the Tucker. It's a magnesium V8 overhead cam, air cooled. Uh, fascinating car. Uh, the Tucker was an interesting car, but they never quite finished. He just couldn't get it together. He only built fifty-two of them, and he used you know leftover transmissions from Cord and you know whatever he could get to get them out the door. I mean, I think if he had been a little more successful it would have been a fascinating car but they were never quite finished and reliability you know there's always the rumor oh the big three were scared they put them out of business and all this kind of nonsense that's not really true none of those stories are true. like this like delorean they said that about him all oh, the vendors, big manufacturers were afraid of delorean with his own stuff well first of all you don't sell that many two-seater cars with rolling doors in america not that many people want that so it was never a threat it just it just wasn't good enough. You know, for something new to succeed, it can't be equal. It's got to be better. And equal only means, eh, you know, there's not enough dealers. You know, General Motors is right around the corner. Ford's right around the corner. You know, so that's kind of why they, they didn't make it. Well, there was some discussion here a while back, and we had a little round table, and it was kind of like the Tucker and the situation with the, with the big three back in the 50s, late 40s, 50s, versus Tesla 
with all the manufacturers today. Do you see a parallel there? I mean, it's not like somebody's trying to put Tesla out of business, but they're certainly trying to compete with him. Well, sure. I mean, Tesla, uh, you know, Elon started something. Uh, the electric car was sort of not a joke, but the electric car, you know, at the turn of the century, the la- not this century, the last of the 1900s, mm-hmm. steam had a third of the market, electric had a third of the market, and gas had a third of the market. And the electric car, because you didn't have to start it with a crank, don't forget the self-start hadn't been invented yet, the electric car is very popular with women because it wasn't greasy, it wasn't dirty. A woman didn't get, have to get down on her hands and knees and turn the crank over or, you know, tickle the carburetor or do any of that kind of stuff. You just got in and you went. Uh, the disadvantage was that there weren't enough women really to buy it. Rich guys bought it for their wives. And because it was women liked it, the car was sold primarily or marketed to women with, you know, a lot of, I have one, it's got a compact and a mirror and all kind of stuff. And much like today, you can't sell a man a woman's car. <laughs> you know, when the Mustang, when the Mustang first came out, Lee Iacocca was definitely afraid because Corvette had a 327, Chevy had the 350, Ford had a 289. And he was so afraid that the Mustang would be seen as a secretary's car, because it had a little V8 engine. So he said to Carol Shelby, do what you can do to make this thing macho. Make it a race car. Make it go out there and kick ass. Do what you can do. And that's what Shelby did. And then she turned up. Remember when the Miata first came out? Yes. Oh, there was the, oh, it's a, oh, it's a hairdresser's car. Oh, it's the, you know, all these insulting, uh, snide little comments when it was actually just a better built Lotus Elan, you know, twin cam. Five speeds. I mean, it was really quite a fascinating automobile. And to this day, it's still the most successful sports car ever built. But the first thing Miata did was they went racing to prove that this was a real race car and it wasn't, you know, quote, a secretary's car. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Miata because in the 1990s, 1990s, as a used car dealer back in the day, well, I wasn't really a used car dealer, but I had customers that were in Europe that were really fascinated with those. I was exporting the daylights out of those cars over there because they said for the money, the durability and the reliability of the Mazda Miata was incredible. It was a great little car. And like you said, to this day, it's still a great little car, even the older ones. It's still a great car. It's still the most fun sports car you can buy for that kind of money. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're terrific. Think of, I mean, the English owned that with MG and Triumph and everything else, but they leaked oil and there were problems and they weren't dependable. And, you know, Miata looked at what it took to do it right, and that's what they did. And the more credit to them. We got a few minutes left. Think, name uh, a couple other cars you think that would have come out of the last, let's say, half century that should have been a good car but failed. What mark comes to mind? I mean, it's well, kind of- I mean, to me, Corvair certainly. Yeah. Um, Corvair, I think Corvair was the most European American car ever built, and when you look at a '66. Corsa, uh, it's a, still a beautiful car. When I drive mine around, you know, younger people, is that a Carmen Gear? No, no, it's not. It's a, it's a Chevy. A Chevy, what, what? You know, it doesn't have a radiator in front. It doesn't have... But again, you know, it came out, the Mustang competed with it. And the Mustang sold $3 million, And the Corvair only sold $1.8 million. 
and that was considered a failure. I mean, you sell 40000 or something now, they make you president of the company. But in the 60s, Corvair only, they only sold $1.8 million versus Mustang $3 million. So it was seen as a failure, and it had six cylinders, the Mustang had eight cylinders, you know, that kind of stuff. You don't happen to have a John Fitch edition by any chance, do you? No, no. I, I, I knew John. I like John. He's a good guy. Um, he was you know, from your neck of the woods, too, up there in New England, right? Right. The John Fitch edition was mostly kind of cosmetics, really. wasn't really too... I've got a Yanko Stinger. John oh. Yanko went, went racing with the, Cor- with the Corvair. What he did was, it was he was trying to be the Carol Shelby of Chevrolet. He got Chevrolet to give him 100 Corvairs with his own serial number. I have car number 54. Uh, uh, 64, sorry. And uh, he put, you know, six carburetors on it, uh, 190 horse, did a few, a grant steering wheel, a few other things, suspension changes, a couple of movers to let more air into the engine. Uh, and they, they were passing because they actually beat Porsche in 1966 in the SCAA, you know, sports car class. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, it really was a poor man's uh, Porsche. Okay. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. You know, it's a flat six. It's sticking to the, hanging on the back of a transaxle. So, you know, a little... Uh, little yeah, the, the trouble was, you know, that, that Ralph Nader book came out. And it's interesting because Unsafe at Eddie Speed was really more about the Volkswagen. About how dangerous it was with the swing axles and the gas tank in front of the passenger by the passenger's chest and the... And Corvair was just like a chapter in the book. But General Motors was so incensed that this 28-year lawyer went after their car that they tried to embarrass him. They tried to sell Ralph, Ralph Nader up with a hooker. And Ralph Nader got wind of it and burst the story wide open. And then suddenly there were congressional hearings as to why why was the world's biggest corporation going after a 28-year-old uh, lawyer. And that's really because... They actually sold more Corvairs than they ever did copies of the book. But because it, because it was a classic case of the cover-up worked in the time, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, they, made, they made such a big deal about it that it became nationalism. And all the problems that the Corvair had been fixed by the time Ralph Nader's book came out. All the suspension changes had been made to make it safer and all that kind of stuff. So it's a fascinating story. That's why... That's why American cars never did anything innovative again. No engines in the back, no air cooling, no trick. Just make engine in front, you know, the basic Panard design. Engine in front, uh, transmission in the middle, rear end, thank you, goodbye, you know. And, and that they did that for the next 30 years. Was he instrumental in, in, in changing kind of like the, the perception of product liability? Um, oh, sure. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of car guys don't like Ralph Nader, but um, I, I, I mean, he did because he wasn't a car guy in any sense of the, of the word, but he did make cars safer. You know, I mean, that's what it's, you know, sometimes American car companies get a bit stuck in their ways. You know, when the emissions came out, you know, they said, oh, no, we can't meet these. And they would spend millions of dollars of lobbyists fighting. And, and the Japanese just went to the company, went to the government and said, what are your regulations? Tell us the rules. Okay, we'll match them. And then they come out, Honda came out with that, with that CCD engine, whatever it was called, you know, 
breakthrough car, 40 miles per gallon, net emissions, blah, 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 blah. and then, you know. So, it's, I mean, it's all for the good. Oh, yeah, it has positive effects. Honda, were you referring to the the Honda Civic by any chance or the, or the one before yeah, yeah, that? Honda, yeah, Honda Civic, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember, remember, the, and I'm surprised you haven't made a joke about that. Remember the commercial I said, well, Honda Civic seats uh, four, an Apple seats two worms, or something to that effect. Remember that commercial back in the 70s? No, I don't remember. I know, no, I don't remember that one. I'm going to have to dig that one up for you and send it to you because yeah, uh, yeah. I, I get a kick out of that because it was just such a nonchalant, kind of like a Joe Izuzu type commercial. Remember him? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. yeah and, he's still around. He's still around? Okay. I, I, you know, back in the day, did you make uh, car jokes back then when you were stand-up? Well, I'm sure we did. I remember Nissan had that commercial. And I remember the joke I quoted in Time Magazine. They had a commercial where they never showed the car. They just showed rocks and trees and nature. And I remember saying uh, they didn't sell many cars, but garden supply stores saying sell the rocks and trees going through the roof. I remember that was sort of the joke that we did at the time. <laughs> well, Jay, we're just about up against the clock. So, again, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. And uh, will you be at SEMA by any chance? I will be there. Yeah, I got a lot, you know, I got a lot of these Jay Leno car care products. And, uh, it, and boy, they're doing really well. I'm, I'm really surprised. You know, we developed them into my shop. And we just sort of put it out there and asked people to try it. Tell us what you think. And people are reordering it. It's, it's doing really, really well. So uh, we're going into AutoZone and uh, some of the other stores. So we'll be at Steam. I'll see you there. Okay. Well, Jay, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. The best of luck to you on all your shows, your stand-up, your traveling, your cars, uh, you know, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, listeners. Uh I think uh, we got a few minutes here, so uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, again, if you just tuned in, uh, be sure and uh, check out our podcast here for our uh, our interview here with Jay Leno. He's always a treat to have on the show because here's a guy that, you know, you ever heard of saying um, you can throw something against the wall and see what sticks? Well, you can uh, throw any car topic at Jay Leno, and Jay Leno will, uh, you know, he can talk about it, which is great. You know, it's just so it's like you can, whatever you can think about, you know, he'll uh, he'll talk about it, and that's, and, and, and that's what makes... Uh, interviews kind of fascinating you know my interviews on my radio show are more conversation oriented and with a little bit of dialogue so uh, you know again I'm very thankful to, to, to have someone like Jay come on my show and, uh, and and let you listeners enjoy the uh, conversation as well so hey don't forget to check us out every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network for the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports tell your friend to follow us on some of our social media Facebook and uh, see what is it? oh yeah Twitter and uh, don't forget to check out FloridaCarshows.com, FLACarshows.com, where you can find out where all the cars are taking place in the state of Florida. Don't forget to see, we got SEMA coming up, Cigar City Concourse coming up, Mid-Florida Auto Show on the 20th, Zephyr Hills is coming up, a lot of stuff. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.
out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you ten dollars if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you jump cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.